Chapter Eight of the Strange Case of Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eight, The Last Night. Mister Utterson was sitting by his fireside one evening after dinner when he was surprised to receive a visit from Poole. Bless me, Poole! What brings you here? He cried, and then taking a second look at him what ails you he asked is the doctor ill mr utterson said the man there is something wrong take a seat and here is a glass of wine for you said the lawyer now take your time and tell me plainly what you want you know the doctor's ways sir replied poole and how he shuts himself up well he's shut up again in the cabinet and i don't like it sir i wish i may die if i like it mr utterson sir i'm afraid now my good man said the lawyer be explicit what are you afraid of i've been afraid for about a week returned poole doggedly disregarding the question and i can bear it no more the man's appearance amply bore out his words his manner was altered for the worse and except for the moment when he had first announced his terror he had not once looked the lawyer in the face even now he sat with the glass of wine untasted on his knee and his eyes directed to a corner of the floor i can bear it no more he repeated come said the lawyer i see you have some good reason Poole. i see there is something seriously amiss try to tell me what it is i think there's been foul play said Poole hoarsely foul play cried the lawyer a good deal frightened and rather inclined to be irritated in consequence what foul play what does the man mean i daren't say sir was the reply but will you come along with me and see for yourself mr utterson's only answer was to rise and get his hat and greatcoat but he observed with wonder the greatness of the relief that appeared upon the butler's face and perhaps with no less that the wine was still untasted when he set it down to follow it was a wild cold seasonable night of march with the pale moon lying on her back as though the wind had tilted her and flying rack of the most diaphanous and lawny texture the wind made talking difficult and flecked the blood into the face it seemed to have swept the streets unusually bare of passengers besides for Mr. Utterson thought he had never seen that part of London so deserted. He could have wished it otherwise. Never in his life had he been conscious of so sharp a wish to see and touch his fellow-creatures, for, struggle as he might, there was borne in upon his mind a crushing anticipation of calamity. The square, when they got there, was full of wind and dust, and the thin trees in the garden were lashing themselves along the railing. Poole, who had kept all the way a pace or two ahead, now pulled up in the middle of the pavement, and in spite of the biting weather, took off his hat and mopped his brow with a red pocket-handkerchief. But for all the hurry of his coming, these were not the dews of exertion that he wiped away, but the moisture of some strangling anguish, for his face was white and his voice when he spoke harsh and broken. "'Well, sir,' he said, here we are and god grant there be nothing wrong amen pool said the lawyer 
Thereupon the servant knocked in a very guarded manner. The door was opened on the chain, and a voice asked from within, Is that you, Poole? It's all right, said Poole. Open the door. The hall, when they entered it, was brightly lighted up. The fire was built high, and about the hearth the whole of the servants, men and women, stood huddled together like a flock of sheep. At the sight of Mr. Utterson, the housemaid broke into hysterical whimpering, and the cook, crying out, "'Bless God, it's Mr. Utterson!' ran forward as if to take him in her arms. "'What? What? Are you all here?' said the lawyer peevishly. "'Very irregular, very unseemly. Your master would be far from pleased.' they are all afraid said poole blank silence followed no one protesting only the maid lifted her voice and now wept loudly hold your tongue poole said to her with a ferocity of accent that testified to his own jangled nerves and indeed when the girl had so suddenly raised the note of her lamentation they had all started and turned toward the inner door with faces of dreadful expectation and now continued the butler addressing the knife-boy reach me a candle and we'll get this through hands at once and then he begged mr utterson to follow him and led the way to the back garden now sir said he you come as gently as you can i want you to hear and i don't want you to be heard and see here sir if by any chance he was to ask you in don't go Mr. Utterson's nerves at this unlooked-for termination gave a jerk that nearly threw him from his balance. But he recollected his courage and followed the butler into the laboratory building through the surgical theatre with its lumber of crates and bottles to the foot of the stair. Here Poole motioned him to stand on one side and listen, while he himself, setting down the candle and making a great and obvious call on his resolution, mounted the steps and knocked with a somewhat uncertain hand on the red baize of the cabinet door mr utterson sir asking to see you he called and even as he did so once more violently signed to the lawyer to give ear a voice answered from within tell him i cannot see anyone it said complainingly thank you sir said poole with a note of something like triumph in his voice, and, taking up his candle, he led Mr. Utterson back across the yard and into the great kitchen, where the fire was out and the beetles were leaping on the floor. "'Sir,' he said, looking Mr. Utterson in the eyes, "'was that my master's voice?' "'It seems much changed,' replied the lawyer, very pale, but giving look for look. "'Changed? Well—' yes i think so said the butler have i been twenty years in this man's house to be deceived about his voice no sir masters made away with he was made away with eight days ago when we heard him cry out upon the name of god and who's in there instead of him and why it stays there is a thing that cries to heaven mr utterson this is a very strange tale pool this is rather a wild tale my man said mr utterson biting his finger suppose it were as you suppose uh, suppose dr jekyll to have been well murdered what could induce the murderer to stay that won't hold water it doesn't commend itself to reason well mr utterson 
"'You are a hard man to satisfy, but I'll do it yet,' said Poole. "'All this last week, you must know, him, or it, whatever it is that lives in that cabinet, has been crying night and day for some sort of medicine, and cannot get it to his mind. It was something his way, the master's, that is, to write his orders on a sheet of paper and throw it on the stair. We've had nothing else this past week, nothing but papers, and a closed door, and the very meals left there to be smuggled in when nobody was looking. Well, sir, every day, aye, and twice and thrice in the same day, there have been orders and complaints, and I have been sent flying to all the wholesale chemists in town. Every time I brought the stuff back, there would be another paper telling me to return it because it was not pure, and another order to a different firm. This drug is wanted bitter bad, sir, whatever for. Have you any of these papers? asked Mr. Utterson. Poole felt in his pocket and handed out a crumpled note, which the lawyer, bending nearer to the candle, carefully examined. Its contents ran thus. Dr. Jekyll presents his compliments to Messrs. Maw. He assures them that their last sample is impure and quite useless for his present purpose. In the year 18-blank, Dr. J. purchased a somewhat large quantity from Messrs. M. He now begs them to search with most sedulous care, and should any of the same quality be left, forward it to him at once. Expense is no consideration. The importance of this to Dr. J. can hardly be exaggerated. So far the letter had run composedly enough, but here with a sudden splutter of the pen the writer's emotion had broken loose. "'For God's sake,' he added, "'find me some of the old.' "'This is a strange note,' said Mr. Utterson, and then sharply, "'How do you come to have it open?' The man at Maw's was main angry, sir, and he threw it back at me like so much dirt,' returned Poole. "'This is unquestionably the doctor's hand, do you know?' resumed the lawyer. "'I thought it looked like it,' said the servant, rather sulkily, and then with another voice. "'But what matters hand of right?' he said. "'I've seen him.' "'Seen him?' repeated Mr. Utterson. "'Well?' "'That's it,' said Poole. "'It was this way. I came suddenly into the theatre from the garden.' It seems he had slipped out to look for this drug, or whatever it is, for the cabinet door was open, and there he was at the far end of the room, digging among the crates. He looked up when I came in, gave a kind of cry, and whipped upstairs into the cabinet. It was but for one minute that I saw him, but the hair stood upon my head like quills. Sir, if that was my master, why had he a mask upon his face? If it was my master, why did he cry out like a rat and run from me? I have served him long enough. And then the man paused and passed his hand over his face. These are all very strange circumstances, said Mr. Utterson, but I think I begin to see daylight. Your master, Poole, is plainly seized with one of those maladies that both torture and deform the sufferer, Hence, for aught I know, the alteration of his voice. Hence the mask and the avoidance of his friends. Hence his eagerness to find this drug, by means of which the poor soul retains some hope of ultimate recovery. 
God grant that he be not deceived. There is my explanation. It is sad enough, Poole, I, and appalling to consider. But it is plain and natural, hangs well together, and delivers us from all exorbitant alarms. Sir, said the butler, turning to a sort of mottled pallor, that thing was not my master, and there's the truth. My master, here he looked round him and began to whisper, is a tall, fine build of a man, and this was more of a dwarf. Utterson attempted to protest. Oh, sir, cried Poole, do you think I do not know my master after twenty years? Do you think I do not know where his head comes to in the cabinet door, where I saw him every morning of my life? No, sir, that thing in the mask was never Dr. Jekyll. God knows what it was, but it was never Dr. Jekyll. And it is the belief of my heart that there was murder done. Poole, replied the lawyer, if you say that, it will become my duty to make certain. Much as I desire to spare your master's feelings, much as I am puzzled by this note which seems to prove him to be still alive, I shall consider it my duty to break in that door. Ah, Mr. Utterson, that's talking, cried the butler. And now comes the second question, resumed Utterson. Who is going to do it? Why, you and me, sir, was the undaunted reply. That's very well said, returned the lawyer, and whatever comes of it, I shall make it my business to see you are no loser. There is an axe in the theatre, continued Poole, and you might take the kitchen poker for yourself. The lawyer took that rude but weighty instrument into his hand and balanced it. Do you know, Poole, he said, looking up, that you and I are about to place ourselves in a position of some peril? You may say so, sir, indeed, returned the butler. It is well, then, that we should be frank, said the other. We both think more than we have said. Let us make a clean breast. This masked figure that you saw, did you recognize it? Well, sir, it went so quick, and the creature was so doubled up, that I could hardly swear to that, was the answer. But if you mean, was it Mr. Hyde? Why, yes, I think it was. You see, it was much of the same bigness, and it had the same quick, light way with it. And then who else could have got in by the laboratory door? You have not forgotten, sir, that at the time of the murder he had still the key with him? But that's not all. I don't know, Mr. Utterson, if you ever met this Mr. Hyde? Yes, said the lawyer. I once spoke with him. Then you must know as well as the rest of us that there was something queer about that gentleman, something that gave the man a turn. Uh, I don't know rightly how to say it, sir, beyond this, that you felt it in your marrow, kind of cold and thin. Quite so, sir, returned Poole. Well, when that masked thing like a monkey jumped from among the chemicals and whipped into the cabinet, it went down my spine like ice. Oh, I know it's not evidence, Mr. Utterson. I'm book-learned enough for that. But a man has his feelings, and I give you my Bible word it was Mr. Hyde. Aye, aye, said the lawyer. 
my fears incline to the same point evil i fear founded evil was sure to come of that connection i truly i believe you i believe poor harry is killed and i believe his murderer for what purpose god alone can tell is still lurking in his victim's room well let our name be vengeance call bradshaw the footman came at the summons very white and nervous pull yourself together bradshaw said the lawyer this suspense i know is telling upon all of you but it is now our intention to make an end of it pool here and i are going to force our way into the cabinet if all is well my shoulders are broad enough to bear the blame meanwhile lest anything should really be amiss or any malefactor seek to escape by the back you and the boy must go round the corner with a pair of good sticks and take your post at the laboratory door we give you ten minutes to get to your patients as bradshaw left the lawyer looked at his watch and now Poole, let us get to ours he said and taking the poker under his arm led the way into the yard the scud had banked over the moon and it was now quite dark the wind which only broke in puffs and draughts into that deep well of building tossed the light of the candle to and fro about their steps until they came into the shelter of the theatre where they sat down silently to wait london hummed solemnly all around but nearer at hand the stillness was only broken by the sounds of a footfall moving to and fro along the cabinet floor so it will walk all day sir whispered pool ay and the better part of the night only when a new sample comes from the chemist there's a bit of a break ah it's an ill conscience that such an enemy to rest ah sir there's blood foully shed in every step of it but hark again a little closer put your heart to your ears mr utterson and tell me is that the doctor's foot the steps fell lightly and oddly with a certain swing for all they went so slowly it was different indeed from the heavy creaking tread of henry jekyll utterson sighed is there never anything else he asked Poole nodded once he said once i heard it weeping weeping how that said the lawyer conscious of a sudden chill of horror weeping like a woman or a lost soul said the butler i came away with that upon my heart that i could have wept too but now the ten minutes drew to an end Poole disinterred the axe from under a stack of packing straw the candle was set upon the nearest table to light them to the attack and they drew near with bated breath to where that patient foot was still going up and down up and down in the quiet of the night jackal cried utterson with a loud voice i demand to see you he paused a moment but there came no reply i give you fair warning our suspicions are aroused and i must and shall see you he resumed if not by fair means then by foul if not by your consent then by brute force utterson said the voice for god's sake have mercy 
Aye, that's not Jekyll's voice. It's Hyde's, cried Utterson. Down with the door, Poole. Poole swung the axe over his shoulder. The blow shook the building, and the red baize door leaped against the lock and hinges. A dismal screech as of mere animal terror rang from the cabinet. Up went the axe again, and again the panels crashed, and the frame bounded. Four times the blow fell, but the wood was tough and the fittings were of excellent workmanship. It was not until the fifth that the lock burst and the wreck of the door fell inwards on the carpet. The besiegers, appalled at their own riot and the stillness that had succeeded, stood back a little and peered in. There lay the cabinet before their eyes in the quiet lamplight, a good fire glowing and chattering on the hearth, the kettle singing its thin strain, a drawer or two open, papers neatly set forth on the business table, and, nearer the fire, the things laid out for tea. The quietest room, you would have said, and, but for the glazed presses full of chemicals, the most commonplace that night in London. Right in the middle there lay the body of a man, sorely contorted and still twitching. They drew near on tiptoe, turned it on its back, and beheld the face of Edward Hyde. He was dressed in clothes far too large for him, clothes of the doctor's bigness. The cords of his face still moved with a semblance of life, but life was quite gone. And by the crushed vial in his hand, and the strong smell of kernels that hung upon the air, Artisan knew that he was looking on the body of a self-destroyer. "'We have come too late,' he said sternly, "'whether to save or punish.' Hyde is gone to his account, and it only remains for us to find the body of your master. The far greater proportion of the building was occupied by the theatre, which filled almost the whole ground story, and was lighted from above, and by the cabinet, which formed an upper story at one end, and looked upon the court. A corridor joined the theatre to the door on the by-street, and with this the cabinet communicated separately by a second flight of stairs. There were besides a few dark closets and a spacious cellar. All these they now thoroughly examined. Each closet needed but a glance, for all were empty, and all by the dust that fell from their doors had stood long unopened. The cellar indeed was filled with crazy lumber, mostly dating from the times of the surgeon who was Jekyll's predecessor. But even as they opened the door they were advertised of the uselessness of further search, by the fall of a perfect mat of cobweb, which had for years sealed up the entrance. Nowhere was there any trace of Henry Jekyll, dead or alive. Poole stamped on the flags of the corridor. "'He must be buried here,' he said, hearkening to the sound. "'Or he may have fled,' said Utterson, and he turned to examine the door in the by-street. It was locked and lying nearby on the flags they found the key, already stained with rust. "'This does not look like use,' observed the lawyer. "'Use?' echoed Poole. "'Do you not see, sir, it is broken, much as if a man had stamped on it?' "'Aye,' continued Utterson, "'and the fractures, too, are rusty.' The two men looked at each other with a stare. 
"'This is beyond me, Poole,' said the lawyer. "'Let us go back to the cabinet.' They mounted the stair in silence, and, still with an occasional awestruck glance at the dead body, proceeded more thoroughly to examine the contents of the cabinet. At one table there were traces of chemical work, various measured heaps of some white salt being laid on glass saucers, as though for an experiment in which the unhappy man had been prevented. "'That is the same drug that I was always bringing him,' said Poole, and even as he spoke the kettle with a startling noise boiled over. This brought them to the fireside, where the easy chair was drawn cosily up, and the tea-things stood ready at the sitter's elbow, the very sugar in the cup. There were several books on a shelf, one lay beside the tea-things open, and Utterson was amazed to find it a copy of a pious work, for which Jekyll had several times expressed a great esteem, annotated in his own hand with startling blasphemies. Next, in the course of their review of the chamber, the searchers came to the cheval-glass, into whose depths they looked with an involuntary horror. But it was so turned as to show them nothing but the rosy glow playing on the roof, the fire sparkling in a hundred repetitions along the glazed front of the presses, and their own pale and fearful countenances stooping to look in. "'This glass has seen some strange things, sir,' whispered Poole. "'And surely none stranger than itself.' echoed the lawyer in the same tones. For what did Jekyll—he caught himself up at the word with a start, and then conquering the weakness—what could Jekyll want with it? he said. You may say that, said Poole. Next they turned to the business table. On the table, among the neat arrays of papers, a large envelope was uppermost, and bore in the doctor's hand the name of Mr. Utterson. The lawyer unsealed it, and several enclosures fell to the floor. The first was a will, drawn in the same eccentric terms as the one which he had returned six months before, to serve as a testament in case of death and as a deed of gift in case of disappearance. But in place of the name of Edward Hyde, the lawyer, with indescribable amazement, read the name of Gabriel John Utterson. He looked at Poole then back at the paper, and last of all at the dead malefactor stretched upon the carpet. "'My head goes round,' he said. "'He has been all these days in possession. He had no cause to like me. He must have raged to see himself displaced, and he has not destroyed this document.' He caught up the next paper. It was a brief note in the doctor's hand, and dated at the top. "'Opool!' the lawyer cried. He was alive and here this day. He cannot have been disposed of in so short a space. He must be still alive. He must have fled. And then why fled? And how? And in that case can we venture to declare this suicide? Oh, we must be careful. I foresee that we may yet involve your master in some dire catastrophe. Why don't you read it, sir? asked Poole. "'Because I fear,' replied the lawyer solemnly. "'God grant I have no cause for it.' And with that he brought the paper to his eyes, and read as follows. "'My dear Utterson, when this shall fall into your hands, 
I shall have disappeared, under what circumstances I have not the penetration to foresee, but my instinct in all the circumstances of my nameless situation tells me that the end is sure and must be early. Go then and read the first narrative which Lanyon warned me he was to place in your hands, and if you care to hear more, turn to the confession of your unworthy and unhappy friend, Henry Jekyll. There was a third enclosure, asked Utterson. Here, sir, said Poole, and gave into his hands a considerable packet sealed in several places. The lawyer put it in his pocket. I would say nothing of this paper. If your master has fled or is dead, we may at least save his credit. It is now ten. I must go home and read these documents in quiet, but I shall be back before midnight when we shall send for the police. They went out, locking the door of the theatre behind them, and Utterson, once more leaving the servants gathered about the fire in the hall, trudged back to his office to read the two narratives in which this mystery was now to be explained. End of chapter 8— Chapter Nine of the Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Nine Dr. Lanyon's Narrative. On the ninth of January, now four days ago, I received by the evening delivery a registered envelope addressed in the hand of my colleague and old school companion, Henry Jekyll. I was a good deal surprised by this, for we were by no means in the habit of correspondence. I had seen the man, dined with him indeed the night before, and I could imagine nothing in our intercourse that should justify formality of registration. The contents increased my wonder, for this is how the letter ran. 10th December, 18 blank. Dear Lanyon, you are one of my oldest friends, and although we may have differed at times on scientific questions, I cannot remember, at least on my side, any break in our affection. There was never a day when, if you had said to me, Jekyll, my life, my honor, my reason depend upon you, I would not have sacrificed my left hand to help you. Lanyon, my life, my honor, my reason are all at your mercy. If you fail me tonight, I am lost. You might suppose, after this preface, that I'm going to ask you for something dishonorable to grant. Judge for yourself. I want you to postpone all other engagements for tonight. I, even if you were summoned to the bedside of an emperor, to take a cab, unless your carriage should be actually at the door, and with this letter in your hand for consultation, to drive straight to my house. Poole, my butler, has his orders. You will find him waiting your arrival with a locksmith. The door of my cabinet is then to be forced, and you are to go in alone to open the glazed press, letter E, on the left hand, breaking the lock if it be shut, and to draw out, with all its contents as they stand, the fourth drawer from the top, or, which is the same thing, the third from the bottom. In my extreme distress of mind, I have a morbid fear of misdirecting you. 
but even if I am in error you may know the right drawer by its contents, some powders, a vial, and a paper book. This drawer I beg of you to carry back with you to Cavendish Square exactly as it stands. That is the first part of the service. Now for the second. You should be back, if you set out at once on the receipt of this, long before midnight. But I will leave you that amount of margin, not only in the fear of one of those obstacles that can neither be prevented nor foreseen, but because an hour when your servants are in bed is to be preferred for what will then remain to do. At midnight, then, I have to ask you to be alone in your consulting room, to admit with your own hand into the house a man who will present himself in my name, and to place in his hands the drawer that you will have brought with you from my cabinet. Then you will have played your part and earned my gratitude completely. Five minutes afterwards, if you insist upon an explanation, you will have understood that these arrangements are of capital importance, and that by the neglect of one of them, fantastic as they must appear, you might have charged your conscience with my death or the shipwreck of my reason. Confident as I am that you will not trifle with this appeal, my heart sinks and my hand trembles at the bare thought of such a possibility. Think of me at this hour, in a strange place, laboring under a blackness of distress that no fancy can exaggerate, and yet well aware that if you will but punctually serve me, my troubles will roll away like a story that is told. Serve me, my dear Lanyon, and save your friend H. J. P.S. I had already sealed this up when a fresh terror struck upon my soul. It is possible that the post office may fail me, and this letter will not come into your hands until tomorrow morning. In that case, dear Lanyon, do my errand when it shall be most convenient for you in the course of the day, and once more expect my messenger at midnight. It may then already be too late. And if that night passes without event, you will know that you have seen the last of Henry Jekyll. Upon reading of this letter, I made sure my colleague was insane. But till that proved beyond the possibility of doubt, I felt bound to do as he requested. The less I understood of this farrago, the less I was in a position to judge of its importance, and an appeal so worded could not be set aside without a grave responsibility. I rose accordingly from table, got into a hansom, and drove straight to Jekyll's house. The butler was awaiting my arrival. He had received by the same post as mine a registered letter of instruction, and had sent at once for a locksmith and a carpenter. The tradesmen came when we were yet speaking, and we moved in a body to old Dr. Denman's surgical theatre, from which, as you are doubtless aware, Jekyll's private cabinet is most conveniently entered. The door was very strong, the lock excellent. The carpenter avowed he would have great trouble and have to do much damage if force were to be used, and the locksmith was near despair. But this last was a handy fellow and after two hours' work the door stood open. The press marked E was unlocked, 
and I took out the drawer, had it filled up with straw, and tied in a sheet, and returned with it to Cavendish Square. Here I proceeded to examine its contents. The powders were neatly enough made up, but not with the nicety of the dispensing chemist, so that it was plain they were of Jekyll's private manufacture, and when I opened one of the wrappers I found what seemed to be a simple crystalline salt of a white color. The vial to which I next turned my attention might have been about half full of a blood-red liquor, which was highly pungent to the sense of smell, and seemed to me to contain phosphorus and some volatile ether. At the other ingredients I could make no guess. The book was an ordinary version book, and contained little but a series of dates. These covered a period of many years, but I observed that the entries ceased nearly a year ago, and quite abruptly. Here and there a brief remark was appended to a date, usually no more than a single word, double occurring perhaps six times in a total of several hundred entries and once very early in the list, and followed by several marks of exclamation, total failure. All this, though it whetted my curiosity, told me little that was definite. Here were a vial of some salt, and the record of a series of experiments that had led, like too many of Jekyll's investigations, to no end of practical usefulness. How could the presence of these articles in my house affect either the honor, the sanity, or the life of my flighty colleague? If his messenger could go to one place, why could he not go to another? And even granting some impediment, why was this gentleman to be received by me in secret? Ah, the more I reflected, the more convinced I grew that I was dealing with a case of cerebral disease and though I dismissed my servants to bed, I loaded an old revolver that I might be found in some posture of self-defense. Twelve o'clock had scarce rung out over London, ere the knocker sounded very gently on the door. I went myself to the summons, and found a small man crouching against the pillars of the portico. "'Are you come from Dr. Jekyll?' I asked. He told me, yes, by a constrained gesture and when I had bidden him enter he did not obey me without a searching backward glance into the darkness of the square. There was a policeman not far off, advancing with his bull's eye open, and at the sight I thought my visitor started and made greater haste. These particulars struck me, I confess, disagreeably, and as I followed him into the bright light of the consulting-room I kept my hand ready on my weapon. Here at last I had a chance of clearly seeing him. I had never set eyes on him before, so much was certain. He was small, as I have said. I was struck besides with the shocking expression of his face, with his remarkable combination of great muscular activity and great apparent debility of constitution, and, last but not least, with the odd subjective disturbance caused by his neighborhood. This bore some resemblance to incipient rigor, and was accompanied by a marked sinking of the pulse. At the time I set it down to some idiosyncratic personal distaste, and merely wondered at the acuteness of the symptoms. 
but i have since had reason to believe the cause to lie much deeper in the nature of man and to turn on some nobler hinge than the principle of hatred this person who had thus from the first moment of his entrance struck in me what i can only describe as a disgustful curiosity was dressed in a fashion that would have made an ordinary person laughable his clothes that is to say although they were of rich and sober fabric were enormously too large for him in every measurement the trousers hanging on his legs and rolled up to keep them from the ground the waist of the coat below his haunches and the collar sprawling wide upon his shoulders strange to relate this ludicrous accoutrement was far from moving me to laughter rather as there was something abnormal and misbegotten in the very essence of the creature that now faced me something seizing surprising and revolting this fresh disparity seemed but to fit in with and to reinforce it so that to my interest in the man's nature and character there was added a curiosity as to his origin his life his fortune and status in the world these observations though they have taken so great a space to be set down in were yet the work of a few seconds my visitor was indeed on fire with sombre excitement have you got it he cried have you got it and so lively was his impatience that he even laid his hand upon my arm and sought to shake me i put him back conscious at his touch of a certain icy pang along my blood come sir said i you forget that i have not yet the pleasure of your acquaintance be seated if you please and i showed him an example and sat down myself in my customary seat and with as fair an imitation of my ordinary manner to a patient as the lateness of the hour the nature of my preoccupations and the horror i had of my visitor would suffer me to muster i beg your pardon dr lanyon he replied civilly enough what you say is very well founded and my impatience has shown as heels to my politeness i come here at the insistence of your colleague dr henry jekyll on a piece of business of some moment and i understood he paused and put his hand to his throat and i could see in spite of his collected manner that he was wrestling against the approaches of the hysteria i understood a drawer here i took pity on my visitor's suspense and some perhaps on my own growing curiosity there it is sir said i pointing to the drawer where it lay on the floor behind a table and still covered with the sheet he sprang to it and then paused and laid his hand upon his heart i could hear his teeth grate with the convulsive action of his jaws and his face was so ghastly to see that i grew alarmed both for his life and reason compose yourself said i he turned a dreadful smile to me and as if with the decision of despair plucked away the sheet at the sight of the contents he uttered one loud sob of such immense relief that i sat petrified and the next moment in a voice that was already fairly well under control have you a graduated glass he asked i rose from my place with something of an effort and gave him what he asked he thanked me with a smiling nod measured out a few minims of the red tincture and added one of the powders the mixture which was at first of a reddish hue 
began, in proportion as the crystals melted, to brighten in color, to effervesce audibly, and to throw off small fumes of vapor. Suddenly, and at the same moment, the ebullition ceased, and the compound changed to a dark purple, which faded again more slowly to a watery green. My visitor, who had watched these metamorphoses with a keen eye, smiled, sat down the glass upon the table, and then turned and looked upon me with an air of scrutiny. "'And now,' said he, "'to settle what remains. Will you be wise? Will you be guided? Will you suffer me to take this glass in my hand, and to go forth from your house without further parley?' or has the greed of curiosity too much command of you? Think before you answer, for it shall be done as you decide. As you decide, you shall be left as you were before, and neither richer nor wiser, unless the sense of service rendered to a man in mortal distress may be counted as a kind of richness of the soul. Or, if you shall so prefer to choose, a new province of knowledge and new avenues to fame and power shall be laid open to you here in this room upon the instant, and your sight shall be blasted by a prodigy to stagger the unbelief of Satan. Sir, said I, affecting a coolness that I was far from truly possessing, you speak enigmas, and you will perhaps not wonder that I hear you with no very strong impression of belief but I have gone too far in the way of inexplicable services to pause before I see the end. "'It is well,' replied my visitor. "'Lanyon, you remember your vows. What follows is under the seal of our profession. And now you who have so long been bound to the most narrow and material views, you who have denied the virtue of transcendental medicine, you who have derided your superiors, behold! He put the glass to his lips and drank at one gulp. A cry followed. He reeled, staggered, clutched at the table and held on, staring with injected eyes gasping with open mouth and as i looked there came i thought a change he seemed to swell his face became suddenly black and the features seemed to melt and alter and the next moment i had sprung to my feet and leaped back against the walls my arms raised to shield me from that prodigy my mind submerged in terror oh god I screamed, and, oh, God, again and again, for there, before my eyes, pale and shaken and half-fainting and groping before him with his hands like a man restored from death, there stood Henry Jekyll. What he told me in the next hour I cannot bring my mind to set on paper. I saw what I saw, I heard what I heard and my soul sickened at it, and yet now when that sight has faded from my eyes, I ask myself if I believe it, and I cannot answer. My life is shaken to its roots. Sleep has left me. The deadliest terror sits by me at all hours of the day and night, and I feel that my days are numbered, and that I must die, and yet I shall die incredulous. 
as for the moral turpitude of that man unveiled to me even with tears of penitence i cannot even in memory dwell on without a start of horror i will say but one thing utterson and that if you can bring your mind to credit it will be more than enough the creature who crept into my house that night was on jekyll's own confession known by the name of hyde and hunted far in every corner of the land as the murderer of carew hasty lanyon end of chapter nine Chapter Ten of the Strange Case of Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Ten, Henry Jekyll's Full Statement of the Case. I was born in the year eighteen blank to a large fortune, endowed besides with excellent parts, inclined by nature to industry fond of the respect of the wise and good among my fellow-men, and thus, as might have been supposed, with every guarantee of an honourable and distinguished future. And, indeed, the worst of my faults was a certain impatient gaiety of disposition, such as has made the happiness of many, but such as I found it hard to reconcile with my imperious desire to carry my head high and wear a more than commonly grave countenance before the public. Hence it came about that I concealed my pleasures, and that when I reached years of reflection, and began to look round me and take stock of my progress and position in the world, I stood already committed to a profound duplicity of life. Many a man would have even blazoned such irregularities as I was guilty of, but from the high views that I had set before me, I regarded and hid them with an almost morbid sense of shame. It was thus rather the exacting nature of my aspirations than any particular degradation in my faults that made me what I was, and with even a deeper trench than in the majority of men, severed in me those provinces of good and ill which divide and compound man's dual nature. In this case I was driven to reflect deeply and inveterately on that hard law of life which lies at the root of religion and is one of the most plentiful springs of distress. Though so profoundly a double-dealer, I was in no sense a hypocrite. Both sides of me were in dead earnest. I was no more myself when I laid aside restraint and plunged in shame than when I laboured in the eye of day at the furtherance of knowledge or the relief of sorrow and suffering. And it chanced that the direction of my scientific studies, which led wholly towards the mystic and transcendental, reacted and shed a strong light on this consciousness of the perennial war among my members. With every day, and from both sides of my intelligence, the moral and the intellectual, I thus drew steadily nearer to that truth, by whose partial discovery I have been doomed to such a dreadful shipwreck that man is not truly one, but truly two. I say two, because the state of my own knowledge does not pass beyond that point. Others will follow, others will outstrip me on the same lines, and I hazard the guess that man will be ultimately known for a mere polity of multifarious, incongruous, and independent denizens. I, for my own part, 
from the nature of my life advanced infallibly in one direction and in one direction only it was on the moral side and in my own person that i learned to recognize the thorough and primitive duality of man i saw that of the two natures that contended in the field of my consciousness even if i could rightly be said to be either it was only because i was radically both and from an early date even before the course of my scientific discoveries had begun to suggest the most naked possibility of a miracle i had learned to dwell with pleasure as a beloved daydream on the thought of the separation of these elements if each i told myself could be housed in separate entities life would be relieved of all that was unbearable the unjust might go his way delivered from the aspirations and remorse of his more upright twin and the just could walk steadfastly and securely on his upward path doing the good things in which he found his pleasure and no longer exposed to disgrace and penitence by the hands of this extraneous evil it was the curse of mankind that these incongruous faggots were thus bound together that in the agonized womb of consciousness these polar twins should be continuously struggling how then were they dissociated i was so far in my reflections when as i have said a side light began to shine upon the subject from the laboratory table i began to perceive more deeply than it has ever been yet stated the trembling immateriality the mist-like transience of this seemingly so solid body in which we walk attired certain agents i found to have the power to shake and pluck back the fleshy vestment even as a wind might toss the curtains of a pavilion for two good reasons i will not enter deeply into this scientific branch of my confession first because i have been made to learn that the doom and burden of our life is bound for ever on man's shoulders and when the attempt is made to cast it off it but returns upon us with more unfamiliar and more awful pressure second because as my narrative will make alas too evident my discoveries were incomplete enough then that i not only recognized my natural body from the mere aura and effulgence of certain of the powers that make up my spirit but managed to compound a drug by which these powers should be dethroned from their supremacy and a second form and countenance substituted none the less natural to me because they were the expression and bore the stamp of lower elements in my soul i hesitated long before i put this theory to the test of practice i knew well that i risked death for any drug that so potently controlled and shook the very fortress of identity might by the least scruple of an overdose or at the least inopportunity in the moment of exhibition utterly blot out that immaterial tabernacle which i looked to it to change but the temptation of a discovery so singular and profound at last overcame the suggestions of alarm i had long since prepared my tincture i purchased at once from a firm of wholesale chemists a large quantity of a particular salt which i knew from my experiments to be the last ingredient required and late one accursed night i compounded the elements watched them boil and smoke together in the glass and when the ebullition had subsided 
with a strong glow of courage, drank off the potion. The most racking pang succeeded. A grinding in the bones, deadly nausea, and a horror of the spirit that cannot be exceeded at the hour of birth or death. Then these agonies began swiftly to subside, and I came to myself as if out of a great sickness. There was something strange in my sensations, something indescribably new and, from its very novelty, incredibly sweet. I felt younger, lighter, happier in body. Within I was conscious of a heady recklessness, a current of disordered sensual images running like a mill-race in my fancy, a solution of the bonds of obligation, an unknown but not an innocent freedom of the soul. I knew myself at the first breath of this new life to be more wicked, tenfold more wicked, sold a slave to my original evil, and the thought in that moment braced and delighted me like wine. I stretched out my hands, exulting in the freshness of these sensations, and in the act I was suddenly aware that I had lost in stature. There was no mirror at that date in my room. That which stands beside me as I write was brought there later on, and for the very purpose of these transformations. The night, however, was far gone into the morning. The morning, black as it was, was nearly ripe for the conception of the day. The inmates of my house were locked in the most rigorous hours of slumber, and I determined, flushed as I was with hope and triumph, to venture in my new shape as far as to my bedroom. I crossed the yard, wherein the constellations looked down upon me, I could have thought with wonder, the first creature of that sort, that their unsleeping vigilance had yet disclosed to them. I stole through the corridors, a stranger in my own house, and, coming to my room, I saw for the first time the appearance of Edward Hyde. I must here speak by theory alone, saying not that which I know, but that which I suppose to be most probable. The evil side of my nature, to which I had now transferred the stamping efficacy, was less robust and less developed than the good which I had just deposed. Again, in the course of my life, which had been, after all, nine-tenths a life of effort, virtue, and control, it had been much less exercised and much less exhausted, and hence, as I think, it came about that Edward Hyde was so much smaller, slighter, and younger than Henry Jekyll. Even as good shone upon the countenance of the one, evil was written broadly and plainly on the face of the other. Evil besides, which I must still believe to be the lethal side of man, had left on that body an imprint of deformity and decay. And yet, when I looked upon the ugly idol in the glass, I was conscious of no repugnance, rather a leap of welcome. This, too, was myself. It seemed natural and human. In my eyes it bore a livelier image of the spirit. It seemed more express and single than the imperfect and divided countenance I had been hitherto accustomed to call mine. And in so far I was doubtless right. I have observed that when I wore the semblance of Edward Hyde, none could come near me at first without a visible misgiving of the flesh. This, as I take it, was because all human beings, as we meet them, 
or commingled out of good and evil and edward hyde alone in the ranks of mankind was pure evil i lingered but a moment at the mirror the second and conclusive experiment had yet to be attempted it yet remained to be seen if i had lost my identity beyond redemption and must flee before daylight from a house that was no longer mine and hurrying back to my cabinet i once more prepared and drank the cup once more suffered the pangs of dissolution and came to myself once more with the character the stature and the face of henry jekyll that night i had come to the fatal crossroads had i approached my discovery in a more noble spirit had i risked the experiment while under the empire of generous or pious aspirations all must have been otherwise and from these agonies of death and birth i had come forth an angel instead of a fiend the drug had no discriminating action it was neither diabolical nor divine it but shook the doors of the prison-house of my disposition and like the captives of philippi that which stood within ran forth at that time my virtue slumbered my evil kept awake by ambition was alert and swift to seize the occasion and the thing that was projected was edward hyde hence although i had now two characters as well as two appearances one wholly evil and the other was still the old henry jekyll that incongruous compound of whose reformation and improvement i had already learned to despair the movement was thus wholly toward the worse even at that time i had not conquered my aversions to the dryness of a life of study i would still be merrily disposed at times and as my pleasures were to say the least undignified and i was not only well known and highly considered but growing towards the elderly man this incoherency of my life was daily growing more unwelcome it was on this side that my new power tempted me until i fell in slavery i had but to drink the cup to doff at once the body of the noted professor and to assume like a thick cloak that of edward hyde i smiled at the notion it seemed to me at the time to be humorous and i made my preparations with the most studious care i took and furnished that house in soho to which hyde was tracked by the police and engaged as a housekeeper a creature whom i knew well to be silent and unscrupulous on the other side i announced to my servants that a mr hyde whom i described was to have full liberty and power about my house in the square and to parry misgivings I even called and made myself a familiar object in my second character. I next drew up that will to which you so much objected, so that if anything befell me in the person of Dr. Jekyll, I could enter on that of Edward Hyde without pecuniary loss. And, thus fortified, as I supposed, on every side, I began to profit by the strange immunities of my position. Men have before hired bravos to transact their crimes while their own person and reputation sat under shelter i was the first that ever did so for his pleasures i was the first that could plod in the public eye with a load of genial respectability and in a moment like a schoolboy strip off these lendings and spring headlong into the sea of liberty but for me in my impenetrable mantle the safety was complete 
think of it i did not even exist let me but escape into my laboratory door give me but a second or two to mix and swallow the draught that i had always standing ready and whatever he had done edward hyde would pass away like the stain of a breath upon a mirror and there in his stead quietly at home trimming the midnight lamp in his study a man who could afford to laugh at suspicion would be henry jekyll the pleasures which i made haste to seek in my disguise were as i have said undignified i would scarce use a harder term but in the hands of edward hyde they soon began to turn toward the monstrous when i would come back from these excursions i was often plunged into a kind of wonder at my vicarious depravity this familiar that i called out of my own soul and sent forth alone to do his good pleasure was a being inherently malign and villainous his every act and thought centered on self drinking pleasure with bestial avidity from any degree of torture to another relentless like a man of stone henry jekyll stood at times aghast before the acts of edward hyde but the situation was apart from ordinary laws and insidiously relaxed the grasp of conscience it was hyde after all and hyde alone that was guilty jekyll was no worse he woke again to his good qualities seemingly unimpaired he would even make haste where it were possible to undo the evil done by hyde and thus his conscience slumbered into the details of the infamy at which i thus connived for even now i can scarce grant that i committed it i have no design of entering i meant but to point out the warnings and the successive steps with which my chastisement approached i met with one accident which as it brought on no consequence i shall no more than mention as an act of cruelty to a child aroused against me the anger of a passer-by whom i recognized the other day in the person of your kinsman the doctor and the child's family joined him there were moments when i feared for my life and at last in order to pacify their too just resentment edward hyde had to bring them to the door and pay them in a check drawn to the name of henry jekyll but this danger was easily eliminated from the future by opening an account at another bank in the name of edward hyde himself and when by sloping my own hand backward i had supplied my double with a signature i thought i sat beyond the reach of fate some two months before the murder of sir danvers i had been out for one of my adventures had returned at a late hour and woke the next day in bed with somewhat odd sensations it was in vain i looked about me in vain i saw the decent furniture and tall proportions of my room in the square in vain that i recognized the pattern of the bed curtains and the design of the mahogany frame something still kept insisting that i was not where i was that i had not wakened where i seemed to be but in the little room in soho where i was accustomed to sleep in the body of edward hyde i smiled to myself but in a psychological way began lazily to inquire into the elements of this illusion occasionally even as i did so dropping back into a comfortable morning doze i was still so engaged when in one of my more wakeful moments my eyes fell upon my hand now the hand of henry jekyll as you have often remarked was professional in shape and size 
It was large, firm, white, and comely. But the hand which I now saw, clearly enough in the yellow light of a mid-London morning, lying half shut on the bedclothes, was lean, corded, knuckly of a dusky pallor, and thickly shaded with a swart growth of hair. It was the hand of Edward Hyde. I must have stared upon it for near half a minute, sunk as I was in the mere stupidity of wonder, before terror woke up in my breast as sudden and startling as the crash of cymbals, and bounding from my bed I rushed to the mirror. At the sight that met my eyes my blood was changed into something exquisitely thin and icy. Yes, I had gone to bed Henry Jekyll. I had awakened Edward Hyde. How was this to be explained, I asked myself, and then, with another bound of terror, how was it to be remedied? It was well on in the morning. The servants were all up, all my drugs were in the cabinet, a long journey down two pairs of stairs, through the back passage across the open court, and through the anatomical theatre, from where I was then standing horror-struck. It might indeed be possible to cover my face. But of what use was that when I was unable to conceal the alteration of my stature? And then, with an overpowering sweetness of relief, it came back upon my mind that the servants were already used to the comings and going of my second self. I had soon dressed as well as I was able in clothes of my own size, had soon passed through the house, where Bradshaw stared and drew back at seeing Mr. Hyde at such an hour and in such a strange array and ten minutes later dr jekyll had returned to his own shape and was sitting down with a darkened brow to make a feint of breakfasting small indeed was my appetite this inexplicable incident this reversal of my previous experience seemed like the babylonian finger on the wall to be spelling out the letters of my judgment and I began to reflect more seriously than ever before on the issues and possibilities of my double existence. That part of me which I had the power of projecting had lately been much exercised and nourished. It had seemed to me of late as though the body of Edward Hyde had grown in stature, as though, when I wore that form, I were conscious of a more generous tide of blood, and I began to spy a danger that, if this were much prolonged, the balance of my nature might be permanently overthrown, the power of voluntary change be forfeited, and the character of Edward Hyde become irrevocably mine. The power of the drug had not been always equally displayed. Once, very early in my career, it had totally failed me. Since then I had been obliged on more than one occasion to double, and once with infinite risk of death, to treble the amount and these rare uncertainties had cast hitherto the sole shadow on my contentment. Now, however, and in the light of that morning's accident I was led to remark that, whereas in the beginning the difficulty had been to throw off the body of Jekyll, it had of late gradually but decidedly transferred itself to the other side. All things, therefore, seemed to point to this that I was slowly losing hold of my original and better self, and becoming slowly incorporated with my second and worse. Between these two I now felt I had to choose. My two natures had memory in common, 
but all other faculties were most unequally shared between them jekyll who was composite now with the most sensitive apprehensions now with a greedy gusto projected and shared in the pleasures and adventures of hyde but hyde was indifferent to jekyll or but remembered him as the mountain bandit remembers the cavern in which he conceals himself from pursuit jekyll had more than a father's interest hyde had more than a son's indifference to cast in my lot with jekyll was to die to those appetites which i had long secretly indulged and had of late begun to pamper to cast it in with hyde was to die to a thousand interests and aspirations and to become at a blow and forever despised and friendless the bargain might appear unequal but there was still another consideration in the scales for while jekyll would suffer smartingly in the fires of abstinence hyde would not be even conscious of all that he had lost strange as my circumstances were the terms of this debate were as old and commonplace as man much the same inducements and alarms cast the die for any tempted and trembling sinner and it fell out with me as it falls with so vast a majority of my fellows that i chose the better part and was found wanting in the strength to keep to it yes i preferred the elderly and discontented doctor surrounded by friends and cherishing honest hopes and bade a resolute farewell to the liberty the comparative youth the light step leaping impulses and secret pleasures that i had enjoyed in the disguise of hyde i made this choice perhaps with some unconscious reservation for i neither gave up the house in soho nor destroyed the clothes of edward hyde which still lay ready in my cabinet for two months however i was true to my determination for two months i led a life of such severity as i had never before attained to and enjoyed the compensations of an approving conscience but time began at last to obliterate the freshness of my alarm the praises of conscience began to grow into a thing of course i began to be tortured with throes and longings as of hyde struggling after freedom and at last in an hour of moral weakness i once again compounded and swallowed the transforming draught i do not suppose that when a drunkard reasons with himself upon his vice he is once out of five hundred times affected by the dangers that he runs through his brutish physical insensibility neither had i long as i had considered my position made enough allowance for the complete moral insensibility and insensate readiness to evil which were the leading characters of edward hyde yet it was by these that i was punished my devil had been long caged he came out roaring i was conscious even when i took the draught of a more unbridled a more furious propensity to ill it must have been this i suppose that stirred in my soul that tempest of impatience with which i listened to the civilities of my unhappy victim i declare at least before god no man morally sane could have been guilty of that crime upon so pitiful a provocation and that i struck in no more reasonable spirit than that in which a sick child may break a plaything 
but i had voluntarily stripped myself of all those balancing instincts by which even the worst of us continues to walk with some degree of steadiness among temptations and in my case to be tempted however slightly was to fall instantly the spirit of hell awoke in me and raged with a transport of glee i mauled the unresisting body taking delight from every blow and it was not till weariness had begun to succeed that i was suddenly in the top fit of my delirium struck through the heart by a cold thrill of terror a mist dispersed i saw my life to be forfeit and fled from the scene of those excesses at once glorying and trembling my lust of evil gratified and stimulated my love of life screwed to the topmost peg i ran to the house in soho and to make assurance doubly sure destroyed my papers thence i set out through the lamp-lit streets in the same divided ecstasy of mind gloating on my crime light-headedly devising others in the future and yet still hastening and still hearkening in my wake for the steps of the avenger hyde had a song upon his lips as he compounded the draught and as he drank it pledged the dead man the pangs of transformation had not done tearing him before henry jekyll with streaming tears of gratitude and remorse had fallen upon his knees and lifted his clasped hands to god the veil of self-indulgence was rent from head to foot i saw my life as a whole i followed it up from the days of childhood when i had walked with my father's hand and through the self-denying toils of my professional life to arrive again and again with the same sense of unreality at the damned horrors of the evening i could have screamed aloud i sought with tears and prayers to smother down the crowd of hideous images and sounds with which my memory swarmed against me and still between the petitions the ugly face of my iniquity stared into my soul as the acuteness of this remorse began to die away it was succeeded by a sense of joy the problem of my conduct was solved hyde was thenceforth impossible whether i would or not i was now confined to the better part of my existence and oh how i rejoiced to think of it with what willing humility i embraced anew the restrictions of natural life with what sincere renunciation i locked the door by which i had so often gone and come and ground the key under my heel the next day came the news that the murder had not been overlooked that the guilt of hyde was patent to the world and that the victim was a man high in public estimation it was not only a crime it had been a tragic folly i think i was glad to know it i think i was glad to have my better impulses thus buttressed and guarded by the terrors of the scaffold jekyll was now my city of refuge let but hyde peep out an instant and the hands of all men would be raised to take and slay him i resolved in my future conduct to redeem the past and i can say with honesty that my resolve was fruitful of some good you know yourself how earnestly in the last month of the last year i labored to relieve suffering you know that much was done for others and that the days passed quietly almost happily for myself 
nor can I truly say that I wearied of this beneficent and innocent life. I think instead that I daily enjoyed it more completely, but I was still cursed with my duality of purpose, and as the first edge of my penitence wore off, the lower side of me, so long indulged, so recently chained down, began to growl for license. Not that I dreamed of resuscitating Hyde. The bare idea of that would startle me to frenzy. No, it was in my own person that I was once more tempted to trifle with my conscience. And it was as an ordinary secret sinner that I at last fell before the assaults of temptation. There comes an end to all things. The most capacious measure is filled at last. And this brief condescension to my evil finally destroyed the balance of my soul. And yet I was not alarmed. The fall seemed natural, like the return of the old days before I had made my discovery. It was a fine, clear January day, wet underfoot, where the frost had melted, but cloudless overhead, and the Regent's Park was full of winter chirperings and sweet with spring odors. I sat in the sun on a bench, the animal within me licking the chops of memory. The spiritual side a little drowsed, promising subsequent penitence, but not yet moved to begin. After all, I reflected, I was like my neighbors. And then I smiled, comparing myself with other men, comparing my active goodwill with the lazy cruelty of their neglect. And at the very moment of that vainglorious thought, a qualm came over me a horrid nausea and the most deadly shuddering. These passed away and left me faint. And then, as in its turn faintness subsided, I began to be aware of a change in the temper of my thoughts, a greater boldness, a contempt of danger, a solution of the bonds of obligation. I looked down. My clothes hung formlessly on my shrunken limbs. The hand that lay on my knee was corded and hairy. I was once more Edward Hyde. A moment before I had been safe of all men's respect, wealthy, beloved, the cloth laying for me in the dining-room at home, and now I was the common quarry of mankind, hunted, homeless, a known murderer, thrall to the gallows. My reason wavered, but it did not fail me utterly. I have more than once observed that in my second character my faculties seemed sharpened to a point, and my spirits more tensely elastic. Thus it came about that, where Jekyll perhaps might have succumbed, Hyde rose to the importance of the moment. My drugs were in one of the presses of my cabinet. How was I to reach them? That was the problem that, crushing my temples in my hands, I set myself to solve. The laboratory door I had closed. If I sought to enter by my house, my own servants would consign me to the gallows. I saw I must employ another hand, and thought of Lanyon. How was he to be reached? How persuaded? Supposing that I escaped capture in the streets, how was I to make my way into his presence? And how should I, an unknown and displeasing visitor, prevail on the famous physician to rifle the study of his colleague Dr. Jekyll. Then I remembered that of my original character one part remained to me. I could write my own hand, and once I had conceived that kindling spark, 
the way that I must follow became lighted up from end to end. Thereupon I arranged my clothes as best I could, and, summoning a passing hansom, drove to an hotel in Portland Street, the name of which I chanced to remember. At my appearance, which was indeed comical enough, however tragic a fate these garments covered, the driver could not conceal his mirth. I gnashed my teeth upon him with a gust of devilish fury, and the smile withered from his face, happily for him, yet more happily for myself, for in another instant I had certainly dragged him from his perch. At the inn, as I entered, I looked about me with so black a countenance as to make the attendants tremble. Not a look did they exchange in my presence, but obsequiously took my orders, led me to a private room, and brought me wherewithal to write. Hyde in danger of his life was a creature new to me, shaken with inordinate anger, stung to the pitch of murder, lusting to inflict pain. Yet the creature was astute, mastered his fury with a great effort of the will, composed his two important letters, one to Lanyon and one to Poole, and that he might receive actual evidence of their being posted, sent them out with directions that they should be registered. Thenceforward he sat all day before the fire in the private room, gnawing his nails. There he dined, sitting alone with his fears, the waiter visibly quailing before his eye, and thence, when the night was fully come, he set forth in the corner of a closed cab, and was driven to and fro about the streets of the city. He, I say, I cannot say I. That child of hell had nothing human, nothing lived in him but fear and hatred. And when at last, thinking the driver had begun to grow suspicious, he discharged the cab and ventured on foot, attired in his misfitting clothes, an object marked out for observation, into the midst of the nocturnal passengers, these two base passions raged within him like a tempest. He walked fast, haunted by his fears, chattering to himself, skulking through the less frequented thoroughfares, counting the minutes that still divided him from midnight. Once a woman spoke to him, offering, I think, a box of lights. He smote her in the face, and she fled. When I came to myself at Lanyon's, the horror of my old friend perhaps affected me somewhat. I do not know. It was at least but a drop in the sea to the abhorrence with which I looked back upon these hours. A change had come over me. It was no longer the fear of the gallows. It was the horror of being Hyde that racked me. I received Lanyon's condemnation partly in a dream. It was partly in a dream that I came home to my own house and got into bed. I slept after the prostration of the day with a stringent and profound slumber, which not even the nightmares that wrung me could avail to break. I awoke in the morning, shaken, weakened, but refreshed. I still hated and feared the thought of the brute that slept within me, and I had not, of course, forgotten the appalling dangers of the day before. But I was once more at home, in my own house, and close to my drugs and gratitude for my escape shone so strong in my soul that it almost rivaled the brightness of hope. I was stepping leisurely across the court after breakfast, drinking the chill of the air with pleasure, when I was seized again with those indescribable sensations that heralded the change. 
and I had but the time to gain the shelter of my cabinet before I was once again raging and freezing with the passions of Hyde. It took on this occasion a double doze to recall me to myself, and alas, six hours after, as I sat looking sadly in the fire, the pangs returned, and the drug had to be re-administered. In short, from that day forth it seemed only by a great effort of gymnastics, and only under the immediate stimulation of the drug, that I was able to wear the countenance of Jekyll. At all hours of the day and night I would be taken with a premonitory shudder. Above all, if I slept or even dozed for a moment in my chair, it was always as Hyde that I awakened. Under the strain of this continual impending doom, and by the sleepiness to which I now condemned myself, I, even beyond what I had thought possible to man, I became in my own person a creature eaten up and emptied by fever, languid, weak both in body and mind, and solely occupied by one thought, the horror of my other self. But when I slept, or when the virtue of the medicine wore off, I would leap almost without transition, for the pangs of transformation grew daily less marked, into the possession of a fancy brimming with images of terror, a soul boiling with causeless hatreds, and a body that seemed not strong enough to contain the raging energies of life. The powers of Hyde seem to have grown with the sickliness of Jekyll and certainly the hate that now divided them was equal on each side. With Jekyll it was a thing of vital instinct. He had now seen the full deformity of that creature that shared with him some of the phenomena of consciousness, and was co-heir with him to death. And beyond these links of community, which in themselves made the most poignant part of his distress, he thought of Hyde, for all his energy of life, as of something not only hellish, but inorganic. This was the shocking thing, that the slime of the pit seemed to utter cries and voices, that the amorphous dust gesticulated and sinned, that what was dead and had no shape should usurp the offices of life, and this again, that that insurgent horror was knit to him closer than a wife, closer than an eye lay caged in his flesh, where he heard it mutter and felt it struggle to be born. And at every hour of weakness and in the confidence of slumber prevailed against him and opposed him out of life. The hatred of Hyde for Jekyll was of a different order. His terror of the gallows drove him continually to commit temporary suicide and return to his subordinate station of a part instead of a person. But he loathed the necessity, he loathed the despondency into which Jekyll was now fallen, and he resented the dislike with which he was himself regarded. Hence the ape-like tricks that he would play me, scrawling in my own hand blasphemies on the pages of my books, burning the letters and destroying the portrait of my father. And indeed, had it not been for his fear of death, he would long ago have ruined himself in order to involve me in the ruin. But his love of me is wonderful. I go further. I, who sicken and freeze at the mere thought of him, when I recall the abjection and passion of this attachment, and when I know how he fears my powers to cut him off by suicide, 
I find it in my heart to pity him. It is useless, and the time awfully fails me, to prolong this description. No one has ever suffered such torments, let that suffice. And yet even to these habit brought, no, not alleviation, but a certain callousness of soul, a certain acquiescence of despair, and my punishment might have gone on for years, but for the last calamity which has now fallen, and which has finally severed me from my own face and nature. My provision of the salt, which had never been renewed since the date of the first experiment, began to run low. I sent out for a fresh supply and mixed the draft. The ebullition followed, and the first change of color, not the second. I drank it, and it was without efficiency. You will learn from Poole how I have had London ransacked. It was in vain, and I am now persuaded that my first supply was impure, and that it was that unknown impurity which lent efficacy to the draft. About a week has passed, and I am now finishing this statement under the influence of the last of the old powders. This, then, is the last time, short of a miracle, that Henry Jekyll can think his own thoughts or see his own face, now how sadly altered, in the glass. Nor must I delay too long to bring my writing to an end. For if my narrative has hitherto escaped destruction, it has been by a combination of great prudence and great good luck. Should the throes of change take me in the act of writing it, Hyde will tear it in pieces. But if some time shall have elapsed after I have laid it by, his wonderful selfishness and circumscription to the moment will probably save it once again from the action of his ape-like spite. And indeed the doom that is closing on us both has already changed and crushed him. Half an hour from now, when I shall again and forever re-endo that hated personality, I know how I shall sit shuddering and weeping in my chair, or continue, with the most strained and fear-struck ecstasy of listening, to pace up and down this room, my last earthly refuge, and give ear to every sound of menace. Will Hyde die upon the scaffold, or will he find courage to release himself at the last moment? God knows, I am careless. This is my true hour of death, and what is to follow concerns another than myself. Here then, as I lay down the pen and proceed to seal up my confession, I bring the life of that unhappy Henry Chuckle to an end. End of chapter 10 End of The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson This story performed by Phil Chenever, January of 2019everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.